More than 20 years ago, foreign terrorists bombed the World Trade Center in New York City. I'm not talking about 9-11. I'm talking about February 1993. This is a CBS News special report. Dan Rather, CBS News reporting from New York, where fire officials here in New York City now say that fires are burning in both towers of the World Trade Center. That's right at the tip of Manhattan. The fire officials say smoke is billowing into hallways of the twin 110-story towers. There are two towers there, both 110 uh, stories. People are being evacuated from both buildings. Early indications are that perhaps 100 injuries or more. That day in 1993, six people died, and the event was front page news for weeks. It ultimately led to a federal terrorism investigation. And on March 1994, four men were brought to trial for carrying out the bombing. One of the defendants stated he hoped his explosion would topple Tower 1, which would then fall onto Tower 2, killing, in his estimate, the occupants of both World Trade Center buildings, which he estimated to be about 250,000 people. This, he said, was in revenge for the U.S. support of Israel instead of Palestine. Ironically, about eight years later, another group of terrorists flew two commercial jets into each of the World Trade Center towers and brought each of them down at a cost of more than 3,000 lives. Here's ABC News from that morning. Some kind. And as Don Daly reported, this occurred about 15 or 20 minutes ago in downtown New York. And uh, New York time, that would have been about uh, 20 minutes or a quarter of nine. This is a time when literally tens of thousands of people are coming to work uh, at the World Trade Center. Looking at the top of the building, you mentioned there's an observation center, and uh, I don't know what time it opens, but I think it opens fairly early, and people are up there at all hours of the day. Families, tourists coming in to look at the city of New York from atop it. Also, there, I don't know if this is the building that has the restaurant on top of it as well, but in those high floors, there are places where tourists team in the morning, even if the regular workers weren't in. And we remind you again that there was a terrorist bomb that did go off at the World Trade Center years ago. It was down in the garage level, but we have no Obviously reason no to Obviously no indication that this could have been related to that. Right. No. Don Daler, ABC's Don Daler, who is on the scene. Don, just give me some description again of what, you're, uh, what you can see now. What we're seeing, it appears that the, there is more and more fire and smoke enveloping the very top of the building. And... As fire crews are descending on this area, it, it does not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Has just I did not see a plane go in. That, that just exploded. We I, just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I did that was out of up Yes, and that's view. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center that is underway in downtown New York. I realize this isn't the typical InfoSec opening for the Hacker Mine, but it is an important backstory for the episode's guest. He's a former FBI agent from New York City, one who fought drug lords and terrorists, and then went on to help form the FBI's cybercrime division we know today. 
I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking with someone with 25 years of experience with the FBI, who has now transitioned into the corporate world, and who can best describe the experiences on both sides of fighting online crime today. The Federal Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, is a kind of a federal police for the United States. If a crime happens beyond the border of a given state or territory, it is the FBI who will step in and handle the investigation. Here's a 1930s propaganda piece with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Of this, one branch is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the G-Man. This is a Bureau of Scientific Crime Detection. New, modern, up to the minute, in action day and night. The FBI never sleeps. The G-Men have become a legend. So what's the mystery behind their badge? There's heroism, we know that. The memory of special agents who have given their lives to their duty. To them and to their families, this picture is dedicated. Soldiers in war while the world is at peace the victorious war that the G-men have waged against organized crime. What mystery is there behind that triumph of law? Let's see. Let's ask J. Edgar Hoover, who as a young attorney became in 1924 director of the G-men. There is nothing mysterious about the manner in which the Federal Bureau of Investigation works. Its formula is a simple one. Intensive training, carefully investigated, and highly efficient personnel, plus rigid requirements in regard to conduct, intelligence and integrity. A special agent must be a good marksman and have the courage to shoot it out with the most venomous of public enemies. He must know how to take fingerprints and what to do with them afterwards. He must know that no clue, no matter how seemingly unimportant, can be overlooked. He must have constantly before him the fact that science is a bulwark of criminal investigation. And he must realize that no case ever ends for the Federal Bureau of Investigation until it is solved and closed with the conviction of the guilty or the acquittal of the innocent. The FBI agent is a common element of most crime shows today. Growing up, I had a friend whose father worked in the FBI, and he was just an ordinary dad. He showed up at things. He was an ordinary person. But what he did was very important, and still a lot of mystery around what he actually did. And then there are those that transition out of the FBI and go to work for private enterprise. Uh, it's Michael McPherson. I'm the Senior Vice President of Security Operations for ReliaQuest. Michael McPherson is one of the people I interviewed at RSAC this year, and he was there to support his new company. At ReliaQuest, we like to say we make security possible uh, for, for, for our customers. Right? So what, is, what does that mean to them? We talk about you know, we're trying to increase their visibility of their network. We want to decrease their complexity of what they're seeing and help them manage risk. And how we do that is through using our security operations platform, Gray Matter. You know, it's built on an OpenXDR architecture, and we provide this as a service across their telemetry, or so whether it's on, you know, uh, on their network, on their cloud, or at the endpoint, across all that telemetry, we can do that for them and provide that service anywhere, anytime. So you would think that if an FBI agent was working in cybercrime, that they would have an experience working in computers to begin with. 
not the case with Michael. He started out working out as a typical FBI agent in New York City. In the early days, I actually started as a drug agent up in New York City. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a kind of an interesting journey uh, of me and the FBI and how I ended up in this position because a lot of people ask me that. So both bombings of the World Trade Center in 1993 and 2001, they each had a profound effect on Michael McPherson, as it did on all of us. He, though, vowed to make a change in his life to better help his country. It starts back in, in New York, was this drug agent working in New York City, working at Colombian Drug Squad, you know, just thinking that I had it all figured out, right? That I was what I considered doing God's work at the time, taking drugs off the street, putting bad guys in jail, doing the stuff that you'd see on movies, car chases across the George Washington Bridge, undercover operations, uh, you know, early morning raids, all that stuff was fun. I was a young single guy in New York. But I was ignorant to a lot of things that were happening around the world, and especially the terrorism threat. But I had no right to be. I was in the FBI, working in New York City. Uh, our office at 26 Federal Plaza is seven blocks in the World Trade Center that had been hit in 1993 and six people were killed. But I never thought about terrorism. I didn't pay attention to it. What I say was I was willfully ignorant to the threat of what it was about because I was just doing my thing. Until September 11th happened that day when, it, when I was working, what I witnessed that day. So if you were alive back then, on September 11th, it was a day of wall-to-wall television coverage of the fires and then the total collapse of the buildings one and two. The deaths were more than 3,000 individuals, with many more to die years later from contamination. And of the buildings damaged, Building 7 was also a hub for the FBI and other federal agencies. That damage done on 9-11 was a wake-up call for everyone the United States had, in fact, been struck by foreign terrorists. And 9-11 made a change in how we, as Americans, viewed the world, and how our government and our law enforcement agencies viewed their role in the world and online. And, you know, up until that day, I think the, the FBI was the best reactive law enforcement agency in the world, but we were not proactive enough in stopping things. And since that day, I think the FBI changed, the country changed, but I changed also, of this whole optic of, instead of being reactive, proactive. And that kind of led me on a journey of the next 25 years, how we ended up here uh, at, at this point. And, you know, there's a lot in between that, but at the end, I totally understand this cyber threat that, that the nation is facing. And I told myself that I didn't want to be on the sidelines again when the next major incident happened. So if I can still be involved in something when I found a company that their sole mission is, you know, making security possible for customers, partnering what they're doing, that just aligned exactly what I was doing in the FBI. So it was, it was a great fit for me. So in 2001, did the FBI have a cyber presence or were they in the process of still building it? We're, we're building it. It was very, very, very nation state. Like even like I, within a year or so, I, I shifted to counterterrorism effort in the FBI and trying to build this big machine of, and we talked about the cyber the cyber um, terrorism threat that the nation faced and really back then it was a nation thought hey we started to brainstorm what could they do but the adversary had no capacity no capability to really do it they maybe maybe had a will to do a couple things they'd like to do some things but they had no technical expertise to do it so the vast majority of time we spent in the early days in the cyberspace especially in the counterterrorism area was how are they communicating? Uh, and, and they're using web forums, and uh, how are they moving some money around, and that, that, that type of stuff. But it was very uh, not sophisticated for a significant period of time. Unlike today, where you see 
you know, the complex nature of nation state actors and, you know, advanced criminal organizations that are given safe haven through an attack that the spectrum is wide now. So given Michael's experience with drug lords and terrorists, what is his opinion of the barrier to entry for people that are getting into cybercrime today? Is it hard? Is it something that takes rocket science? Are these petty thieves that are just turning to the online world? Well, look, the barriers to entry to cybercrime are pretty low, right? <laughs> so you can get people that are not sophisticated and getting into space, right? They can go out on one website and buy credentials to, to get on a network, and they can go on another one to ransomware as a service and buy the ransomware and go out and do attacks, right? And where are they going to go? They're going to go to a least common denominator. There's a simple fact that if a criminal is walking down the street, that criminal is going to break into a house with an open window and a door that's unlocked. It's just common sense that the barrier to entry, in this case, literally, is pretty low. McPherson doesn't mince words here. You know, I think some of these companies are actually negligent in some of their cyber hygiene. Like, they're, they're, they're allowing themselves to get exposed to this. And at that level, at the, at the unsophisticated hacker ransomware type individuals, small groups, like, they're just going to hit as many people as they can until they find success, right? right. Uh, it's, it's more the hardened ones. So, but the other side of the spectrum, you have these nation-state actors who are really complex and, and really good. If they want to get into a network, they're probably going to get into a network. But I think you're slowly going to see this convergence, I personally think this, of this nation-state actor with the cybercrime, hey, we're, we, you've built up a skill set of people working for a nation-state, right? What's to stop them from moonlighting now and taking their skill sets out on the side and, and, and now making some money on it while they're still doing their day job? Okay, so that's crazy. You have someone who works for the government to break into systems in other countries, and now they're taking those skills and at night and on weekends standing to make a profit from what they've learned through their governments. From the complex side of the nation-state actor to the advanced criminal organization to the low-barrier entry of... Um, of people entering um, you know, this dangerous field, it just makes it so much broader uh, to, to defend against. So I've always said, you know, we talk about just fundamental basic cyber hygiene and like, I'm tired of talking about it and companies are tired of hearing it, but I don't think the needle's really moving. So given that an investigation is still an investigation, are there methods of investigation similar to what he was doing 20 years ago with drug lords that he's now doing in cybercrime? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we, we have to be smarter in how we're doing it, so we have better tools than we've had before. Uh, we're stronger because of our partnerships, even just within the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Like, we talked those dysfunctional days and, and even years after September 11th uh, of how agencies were probably too busy finger-pointing at what happened and really trying to solve problems. There was a fire in Northern California in 1991 in the Oakland Hills, and it grew rapidly out of control, overwhelming the Oakland Fire Department. There were other surrounding fire departments, but there was no formal way to contact them and enlist their help. While many did volunteer and drive their trucks to the fire, many more could have responded as well. Afterward, a system of mutual assistance was formed among the various municipalities in the Bay Area of California. And this mutual aid system has been used many times since. Something like that was needed with online cybercrime. Our 
computer systems did not talk to each other. So the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the DOD, and like all those government agencies that people think we should have all this information. Trying to connect those dots is so much easier said than, um, than done. Uh, and there was some healthy, probably, mistrust among agencies at that time, too. So really those growing pains we had to get through that really highly functioning now at this point, uh, you know, th this many years later. And I think what you've, hopefully what I think people have witnessed in those years after the U.S. government really invested in partnerships among local and federal agencies working together. But in the last few years, we've made a shift as we need to do that same thing with the private sector, right? So we need to reach out more. We need to share more. We need to share when it makes us uncomfortable. One of the many successful public-private partnerships is InfraGuard. This is a partnership between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and members of the private sector that are aligned along the different segments of the U.S. critical infrastructure. And there's a counterpart. There's the 27 sector-based information sharing analysis centers, or ISACs, that are typically coordinated through the U.S. Secret Service. And I think too many times we're hiding behind this information secret, right? Quote, it's secret, we can't tell you. Well, really what's secret was the sources and methods, that we, how we collected it. Yeah. But the actual information wasn't secret. So finding ways to give the information without exposing the sources and methods. And, um, you know, I, I think in, in the last couple of years, you know, as the, I was the agent in charge of the Tampa field office, overseeing this area of everything for cybercrime to now security issues and being able to talk to CEOs of companies about you know their exposure when they got hit to a, by a ransomware and how they deal with it and w walking them through and t talking them through the U.S. government capabilities and how we can partner with them. So um, you know, that, that's what makes us more effective. We talk about security being a team sport and that's what that really, really means is that you're building these relationships before incidents and before problems happen. So when I look at the government, I see a lot of acronyms. How does one separate who covers what? For example, does the U.S. Secret Service do cybercrime? They do. But how do they differ from the FBI's coverage of the cybercrime? And then there's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. How are they different? Yeah, there, there, there is, and I think that's some of the maturity level. Look, there's plenty of work to go around. Right? <laughs> and, and I think in, in, in days gone by, we fought about it. We have a, a strong relationship with CISA. You know, they're not a, a, a law enforcement intelligence agency, right? right. They they're, they're, they're provide, uh, you know, hardening of critical infrastructure, evaluating that, which goes hand in hand with us. So we can partner with them and make us even stronger. There's nothing more frustrating for, I think, for a company. And all of a sudden, the alphabet soup of the government agencies start showing up when there's an incident. Like, they don't understand who we are. So the, the more we can show up and we can define, here's what I do and here's what my partner does. Uh, you know, the Secret Service, there is some overlap uh, w with us, which is which is fine. We, we welcome their expertise in, in, in the space as well, too. I imagine it could be... Um, confusing to people if we don't message it right, right? Because we shouldn't be competing, we should be complimenting in, in, in what we do. Right. And, I, and I think, I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably biased where I came from, but I think we're doing a better job of that today than we ever have before of sharing information. You'll see sitting on each other's task forces. We'll, you'll see Secret Service sitting in FBI space and FBI sitting in C Secret Service space to deconflict those, those types of issues. So that's great that all of these agencies will show up. The problem is, is how do you choose a hierarchy to pass it around. Like, oh, I was the leader last time, now it's your turn. Does that work? Somebody's got to take charge. I mean, yes and no. 
uh, we usually work, work it together, and sometimes we'll get, we'll get copies, and we'll say, okay, you, you, you exploit it, and let it exploit it, let's see if we come up with the same thing, okay. right? Or sometimes we, we divvy up certain jobs. Hey, I'll do this part of it, and you do that part of it, and let's put, let's, let's put it together. Um, because, like, usually, um, you know, we're resource-constrained as well, too, right? Uh, and depending on what the network is, someone in that team may have an expertise. Hey, this is something you specialize in more than we specialize in. And sometimes our, you know, our local partners, local sheriff's office, some of the guys are well advanced to it. They can do it. It doesn't have to be the federal thing. It has to be a solution. Okay, this makes sense. If someone is good at something, you should always try and leverage that, even if that person is in another agency. And I think as long as we're, we're coming that level, and that's where it comes from the bosses to set the tone. Like, it's not like the movies we show up on a ray jacket and say, okay, we're in charge, everybody stand back. Uh, we don't need to do that anymore because we've matured. Sure, maturity accounts for some of that, but I would still think that you would need a hierarchy to deconflict and handle resources more effectively. And I talked about that maturity that we learned in those painful days and years of September 11th of how you partner and how meaningful partnerships are, that we can we push that into all these other avenues, whether it be counterintelligence, uh, cybercrime, traditional crime, all those types of things. We realize how much more powerful we can be with our partners. There have been a lot of analogies between the drug trade and terrorism in the real world and mapping that into online. Given McPherson's experience with actual drug lords in New York City, is the drug trade analogy even accurate for online crime? Yeah, there's, there's some parallels to that. But I also would say that, you know, as much as we talk about the big four threats to China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, like, no, the, the, the big, like, there's nobody better than us <laughs> as a nation and our, and our capabilities. And when you see our our intelligence and law enforcement people sitting down with the major Silicon Valley companies and talking about, you know, having hard discussions about privacy and security and all those types of things. Like, those discussions aren't happening other places. So as much as, you know, we wring our hands sometimes and, and, we, and we think we're, we're losing, look, we're still getting hit. And, and, and anybody you gets hit by uh, like critical infrastructure, you know, it's a disaster, it's a mess. But I still think our, our capabilities, our offensive capabilities that, you know, whether it be cybercom that, you know, uh, when and if we choose to unleash those types of things are, are powerful. So, um, you know, and I think certain adversaries understand a framework better than others. And I think that's the, that's the political dance of it as well, too. So given that analogy, does the way the FBI handles cybercrimes today map to the way it handled the drug lords back in the 1990s? You know, these are, are what I'm talking about, criminal organizations, Eastern European criminal organizations sitting over there, you know, that, that, that are well-organized, um, they're effective, they're, they're, they're powerful. This sounds like we've had trouble bringing these people to justice and shutting them down. If we knew who they are, why are they still out there? Somewhat given a safe haven of, of, of where they operate. There's an understanding of don't bother us and we don't bother you. <laughs> so providing that safe space for them to operate in, um, you know, is, is dangerous. Um, if you look what happened after the Colonial Pipeline, you know, there was a lot of Western pressure put on Russia on, on our evil and what was happening over there and sites were taken down. You know, it felt like maybe there was headway happening. Um, but I think that the Russia-Ukrainian war pushed push that <laughs> uh, in the opposite direction. In early 2022, Russia was clamping down on online criminal organizations. And then, with the start of their conflict with Ukraine, Russia stopped. This then seemed more of a political gesture than an actual crackdown on actual crime. 
There's 100% political pressure in this, yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a political aspect to this, to this problem as well, too, because there are people operating in, in safe havens that, you know, they don't, they don't travel. Uh, it's pretty hard for us to put our hands on them, right? <laughs> so uh, somewhat operating with impunity sometimes. In light of the war, there's been a lot of cooperation among the Western nations who are supporting Ukraine. And I cover this more in depth in episode 50 with Miko Hupinen. Everybody knows that no one can do this alone. They really can't. Like the one agency can't do it, one, one government can't do it, one company can't do it. So even, even, you know, in, in private sector companies, there's a leverage. I've always respected, you know, in the, in the cyber field, there's a healthy partnership or um, brotherhood or sisterhood among CISOs uh, around companies, right? They may be competing companies with different interests, but at the CISO level, like, they all want each other to succeed. They, 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 they want to share best practices and what's working, what's not working. And, and you can see it at conferences like this, and, you know, where they're getting together and really talking uh, about security. And I think that's when we start winning, right? When, when we have that down and, and, and you see that more and more, uh, it's not circle the wagon, just only care about my company. It's, hey, if you're stronger, I'm stronger, right? And, and, and I see that a lot in the CISO community. It's, I think it's, it's, it's heartening for a good way for this country, right? Because, um, you know, economic security is national security. And, and I believe that, um, you know, cyber, the cyber threat landscape is, is, is a destabilizing force in our economy, right? And, and that threatens our national security. McPherson's been outside the FBI for a while. He has a unique perspective in seeing the public-private cooperation from both sides. I personally know the FBI has taken leaps beyond that, right? Like I, I had, I was on a call with the CEO of a, a Midwest hospital system, that, uh, you know, a year ago that got hit by a ransomware, um, and and talking them through it, saying, "Look, I don't have the keys, and I certainly don't want you to pay the ransomware, but let me tell you some intelligence about this." Uh, strain of ransom. I know if you negotiate, you can negotiate it down 60% of what you're paying. Like, here's some things I know. I knew if I told him this stuff, he's probably going to pay. Like, even though I don't want him to, but if I, I, yeah. when I told him all the intelligence I knew about this network, I said, this guy's probably going to pay. But I needed to build that trust and say, I'm going to give you everything I got. So because I do want, I want to know what he knows. I, right. want, I want access to his computer. I want access to information. And you have to, you know, you have to build the trust somehow. Trust is hard, particularly in the security field. And it's always a two-way street. You have to be able to trust the government agency, and they, in turn, have to be able to trust the company. You have to give stuff that maybe years ago the FBI would never sit uh, with, with the CEO of a company and say, hey, you know, you know here, here if, you, if you decide to negotiate, we, we've seen you have at least 45 days. You can string this along before anything does get released. So you, so you're you can start thinking about timeline, you get things together. So, again, telling him those things, he's probably going to do something strategically I didn't want him to do. But I had to let him make a business decision based on all available intelligence, and I think that's how you build trust. Given that McPherson was once in the FBI, does he recommend to his customers that they join InfraGuard or one of the ISACs? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, in, information's power, right? Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the threat management, threat intelligence, understanding that threat. Uh, you know, intelligence has to drive operations. So you have to make sure you're putting in your space uh, yourself in a space where you can collect and understand the intelligence and then understand what it means to you. And I think that's where 
companies are failing because we're saying just do this phishing test, but we're not really explaining the threat to people. And I think if people understood threats, they would take better actions. So it all starts from intelligence, intelligence sharing, joining InfraGuard, belonging to ISACs, I mean, all those types of networks to have a better understanding of it. And then you could understand how it affects you. Are, are you, uh, is your, whatever sector you, you're in, is there a narrow supply chain going through there that's going to affect you and only for the companies that that supply chain hit, they can hit you, you all out? Like, so really understand how it affects you. And I don't know if we spend enough um, strategic time thinking about that. It's, you know, playing whack-a-mole sometimes, um, which, okay, everybody's busy. We're all busy. But I think you, as, as leaders, you have to learn to um, carve out time to have that, that thought process and, and, and mapping out where, where you are and where you want to be. So what I'm hearing here is that it's a matter of conceptualizing it a bit more. Just telling people to do phishing tests, that's in isolation. They don't necessarily see how it impacts the broader scope of things. Yeah, they may not understand, oh, my company doesn't have anything anyway. Why would anybody want to do my company? You're not, not going to happen there or, uh, you know, something else will catch it or, you know, what, like, and don't understand, hey, this is, this is what you're sitting on, right? <laughs> and let me give you some, everybody loves war stories. Give me some real life examples of other companies, uh, other businesses who've been devastated by some of this. You could put yourself in your own shoes and, man, that could be me if I'm not careful. And what, what is the effect of that? That's really, I, don't, I don't think we talk enough about that. So you don't spend years in the FBI and not have a few good war stories to share. McPherson has one. Look, I, you know, I talked about, you know, there was a water treatment facility in, uh, in, in Florida uh, when I was the agent in charge of field office there. Um, and they got hit with an attack and, uh, you know, made some national news. It was right around the time of the, of the, of the Super Bowl a couple years ago. And new tonight, an investigation underway after a hacker tried to poison a Tampa Bay area water system. Authorities say they boosted the amount of a chemical in Oldsmar, Florida's water supply up to dangerous levels. Now this happened on Friday, just two days before the Super Bowl. The Pinellas County Sheriff says the hacker increased the amount of sodium hydroxide in the water from 100 parts per million to 11,000. This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. Uh, sodium hydroxide, also known as lye, is the main ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. It's also used to control water acidity and remove metals from drinking water in the water treatment plants. The sheriff says a worker noticed someone remotely moving his mouse on his computer and quickly reversed that change before it could do so much damage. According to the CDC, high exposure to sodium hydroxide or lye can burn your eyes, damage your skin, and cause temporary hair loss. Supposedly within the system, there's supposed to be 100 parts per million, I, I think that the right number was, of, of lye getting put into the water to clean the water. Well, it went from 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million. Um, so obviously, hey, what, what's going on here? Like you said, every government agency showed up, CISA showed up, the FBI showed up, the Secret Service showed up, the, the local sheriff's office, and we started peeling back and seeing what happened and who hacked it. And, you know, we, we looked at how that critical infrastructure, water supply, water treatment facility was operating, and they were ill-equipped for what they were doing. Uh, you know, they didn't have, they had unpatched software, they had shared passwords that had not been changed. Uh, you know, it was, it was rushed during COVID to go to remote desktop protocols. They hadn't updated software. 
uh, operating on Windows 7, I mean, all these types of things. And hey, these are fundamental issues. That, again, we all talk about what is the next advanced tool we can do. If we can't do the fundamentals right, we can't do more advanced stuff. And, and it was shocking that the next day, you know, I, I got in a call with all the, within the county, um, all the other city managers and stuff say, this is happening here, it's happening other place. And I think too many leaders uh, are just assuming or delegating their risk down uh, and they're, they're thinking that shifts the risk if they're going to a third party vendor. Like mm -hmm. the risk is still with that organization. Still you own it. Um, so I think it's still the responsibility of those executives to really understand, you know, you don't have, maybe not have to program or anything, but you should be able to ask the questions. If you can't have a conversation about it and understand what the risk you're assuming, um, you're really putting people unnecessarily at risk. So going back to the negligence of companies themselves in some cases, what really can be done about that? And what are they doing? And is any of that really effective? They're really not. You're still seeing, you know, companies aren't doing their patching and, like, oh, and passwords and like I'm still failing their phishing. I, I talk about this all the time with, with, with the phishing thing because it drives me crazy because every company seems to do it and even we did it in the government too. Every quarter we go out we run our phishing test, right? And you get a list of people that fail it and those people that fail have to go do remedial training and go look at the course again. And then next month, or next quarter, we do the same tests and the same people fail. And the next month, the same people fail. Like, at some point, those people become an insider threat to your organization, <laughs> right? So, right. and they're, they're, because they're negligent. And somehow, companies have to start making a shift. There has to be consequences to this, right? So, I, this is a, an HR issue. This is a company-wide issue. This, this can't be just the security guy and the CISO team and the CIO trying to do this. It needs to be driven from the top down, from the CEO, CEO down, that you find those negligent insider threats. Well, maybe it's a performance evaluation. Whatever it is, there has to be some consequences to this. We can't just go through the cycle of, okay, here's next. Now, now take the test and see how you do next month. I mean, cause we're, just, we're not moving the needle on that. I'd like to thank Michael McPherson for coming on the show and talking a little bit about his experience with the FBI and in the real world. The public-private partnerships are very important to fighting cybercrime. You can't do it alone. You need the help of everybody on both sides of the fence. You need the government to give you the support and the companies to come forward with the information that they have. Together, we can get on top of cybercrime. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative information security podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain Robert Vimosi. Thank you.